Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. It's great to see you. Uh, Welcome to everyone who's here and welcome to all of you who are watching us online. Uh, If you haven't yet enjoyed uh, and joined us in the adventure of uh, a year reading the Bible from cover to cover uh, using a chronological Bible, you can still join us. There's still time. And uh, the links to the information that we gave out on how to do that, resources to help you, the Bible app, all the reading plans, resources, they can be found on our Facebook page. If you just go back to the second week of January, you'll find them there. And again, if you're not a reader, uh, do what I'm doing. I'm using the YouVersion Bible app, and I'm uh, listening to the readings each day. And many days I get through the entire reading uh, while I'm shaving and just getting ready in the morning. So it's not hard to do. Just go ahead and do it. Jump on in. Join us. It's going to be a great adventure this year. In fact, this past week, uh, if you were reading, you got to read some of the famous stories of the founding fathers of faith, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, who God later renamed Israel. And we'll get to some of those stories in a few weeks. But today we continue to lay the foundations of creation. So, uh, regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think all of us can heartily agree on one thing. Things in this life are broken. There's something terribly wrong in the world. Uh, We can point point out to the breakdown of family systems and and, and abuse and ideologies that we consider dangerous. And we can even legitimately, in certain circumstances, even say religion is the problem. But when we get past all the clutter of that noise and and we get into a quiet, self-reflective moment, I think all of us will admit that there is a problem in our own hearts and our own minds. Uh, think about it. When you've had one of those moments when uh, you say something, that something slips out that's totally embarrassing, and you blow up, you say something later, you feel really bad about it, it makes you feel like, oh, that's not the real me, or at least I hope that's not the real me because I hate that me, that version of me. Most often when that happens, we end up saying things like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, or I just made a mistake, I, I'm tired, I, I didn't get enough caffeine, I had too much to drink, and I said something I didn't really mean to say. But, but question, in the moment, didn't you really mean it? Honestly? And if that really wasn't you, then where did it come from? As we get older, hopefully we do that a little bit less often, but... But that doesn't mean the thoughts and the feelings still aren't in our heads. Uh, we just learn better filters. And so where, where does that stuff come from in our lives? Jesus so poignantly points out in Luke 6, he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. I really hate to admit it, um, I discovered this last week that Apple isn't necessarily superior to Android in absolutely everything. Apparently, if you have an Android phone and you use Google Maps, you can activate a special feature now that when you hit 55, it'll tell you, hey, you criminal, slow down. I mean, that's just what we all want to hear when we're driving, right? On second thought, maybe that means that Apple is still superior to Android because Apple people don't need to be reminded. I don't know, but we'll, we'll, we can debate that one afterwards. 
I don't know how I feel, honestly, about a phone nagging me on stuff like that, about how fast I'm going. It's kind of like, you know, when your kids start driving and all of a sudden they start being backseat drivers and they say, Dad, you did a rolling stop. Hey, Dad, did you didn't turn the signal on soon enough. Uh, you aren't holding the steering wheel right. You're going over the speed limit. Why are you doing that? Can, can you imagine if there were a little app on your phone that told uh, out loud every frustrated and critical thought and feeling that goes through your heart and mind? So one day you drive by Krispy Kreme and you just want to go and enjoy a free one, along with the dozen that you're going to buy and take home. And your phone says for everyone to hear in the car, hey, chubby, you need to lose weight before you can do that. That's what you want to hear, right? Or your kid is fouled in a game and the ref doesn't call it and all of a sudden your phone app starts cussing and swearing at the ref in full volume and talking about how evil that kid is who fouled your kid and how bad their parents must be for raising a kid to play like that. Come on, we've all been there. How often would your phone app be going off at work, in traffic, at a game, in church? When those kinds of thoughts and actions and words slip out in actions and words from our heart, we say things like, um, I made a mistake. Or you know, about our past, we may say, I made a mistake in my previous marriage. Or I made a mistake in my last job. Or when a politician gets caught doing something wildly inappropriate, scandalous affair, they say, I made some poor choices. I made some mistakes. But, but does the word mistake really, really capture what's going on? Does the offended spouse think that the other one just made a mistake? See, a mistake is forgetting to pick up the eggs when your wife texts you the shopping list and the eggs are first on the list, but they're last in the way you walk through the store. So by the time you get to where the eggs are, you've got everything else and you forget to check the top of your list and you forget the eggs. See, I love the way Andy Stanley talks about this. He says, sometimes we actually plan our mistakes. Isn't that true? I mean... You know better, but you just want to get something off your chest and you want to do it and you plan it and you have time to think about it and you still do it. What do we call that? What is that? What do we call mistakes we do over and over again for 5, 10, 30, 50 years of marriage? Do we call ourselves a serial mistaker? Today we look at what's gone wrong with us and with our world, and where God is in all of that. By pointing out one really powerful overarching truth, and then we're going to examine three questions that our text today answers and addresses. Let's start in Genesis 2. Uh, God creates all things good. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and they, uh, they're to care for it, and they're to enjoy it. And then he says this. He says, And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's understand something here. God created everything good, including in this passage. Even the command to not do something is good. So you might say, well, what's good about prohibiting something to eat from one tree? Well, that one tree actually gives us our overarching truth, a powerful truth that God is love and love and freedom to choose are inseparable. We often like to treat those as two different points, freedom and love, but they are really one inseparable truth. Freedom of choice, the American dream, the freedom to choose God or to not choose God, the freedom to choose your own path forward in life. We see this difference 
of, of freedom and love, even in abusive relationships versus healthy, happy ones, right? I mean, an, an abuser, in order to make themselves feel good about themselves, they want to control their significant other and make them be what they want them to be, when they want them to be, to meet that need that they have in themselves. So they seek to control, they seek to prevent the choice of their spouse. True love is, is a desire to be freely loved, freely chosen, and freely related to for who we are. You can't have love without freedom of choice. Now, we'll see in our passage in a moment that you can have freedom of choice without love, but you can't have love without freedom of choice. And this is where we begin, I think, in life to fight with the reality as it is. When things aren't going well in life, we like to say things like, if God is so loving and good, then why does He allow X to happen? And what we're most often saying about God when we ask that question is, if He is so powerful and loving, then He should control all things. And we mistakenly understand this term about sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, as absolute control in all choices and all details. The problem with that is absolute control erases any concept of love, making us just robots. See, God's sovereign power and how it works in life needs to be seen in combination with His other attributes, that He's loving, He's patient, He's kind, and He's just, and He's also merciful. Sovereignty doesn't mean everything that happens is God's doing. It means that even in our messed up, broken choices, God has power to influence things, to happen, to make the big picture that He prophesies and says is going to happen, happen as He wants, to orchestrate the fulfillment of all His prophetic words, to create opportunity after opportunity for us to respond to His invitation to forgiveness and relationship. Sovereignty means God can influence the details sufficiently to accomplish what He foretells. It doesn't mean He knows absolutely every choice you're going to make in life. Certainly, He knows your heart well enough to know your choices long before you probably even know you're going to make that choice. But in the end, sovereignty simply means this. God has the power to have the last word, and He will have the last word. See, God is not the puppet master controlling everything that happens. That would neither be good nor loving. Well, we often think, God, could you at least do more? Think about this. For all of you who've had to face the struggle of addiction in your family or friends, were you able to power up and control that person to sobriety? And if you did try to power up and try to control them to sobriety, how did that work? Probably not very good, right? Wasn't there a balance that you needed to find between strongly influencing and supporting them and letting them make and own their own choice? Isn't that the balance where true love is found? See, God is really good at that balance. Freedom of choice is a beautiful, loving thing. It is very good. 
So let's examine what the text answers, uh, uh, how the text talks about one of our first questions. What, what does the text teach us about what is wrong with us and the world? Genesis 3 is where everything goes wrong, so we'll start there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is at the middle of the garden, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's the reason it's the way to a man's heart is through the stomach, right? Started right there. Sorry. First, notice temptation starts by making us question whether God is loving and trustworthy. The question emerges, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the, any tree in the garden? Which is not really an accurate question to anything about God said, but it's, it's getting doubt there. The temptation that's actually being given in this moment is for us to become the judge of what, whether God says is true, good, or right or not. It's, that question sparks pride in us. We put ourselves in the place of God, which is actually the second thing that we notice about temptation and sin, that it makes us think that we know better than God. See, Eve responds saying, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, did you catch what happened there? Eve adds on to what God actually says in 2.17 that we read earlier. She actually exaggerates how strict God is. He didn't say you can't touch it. God just said don't eat it. And isn't that what we do oftentimes with God's commands? Religious people do that. They look at uh, the commands and they say because drinking alcohol can possibly lead to drunkenness that some religious people say that drinking alcohol in and of itself is automatically evil. And they end up living with the duplicity of ignoring the fact that Jesus drank alcohol and Paul encouraged Timothy to have a drink, but, but they still nonetheless exaggerate what God actually commands. But this kind of questioning and love trustworthiness isn't of God, of God isn't, isn't just something religious people do. It's, it's something we all do. You hear people talking about the Bible's prohibition on sex outside of marriage and saying, ah, oh, that's just so strict, it's oppressive, it's just meant to take joy away from us. Why is God so you know, petty on that? And, and then often people want to take that argument to the point of saying, well, God, the Bible's view of sex is it's just dirty and bad. And they say that all to justify their own desires for the sexual freedom choice they want to make. Yet, those who are biblically literate know the Bible in quite shockingly and explicit ways celebrates the utter beauty of sex. Doesn't think it's dirty at all. It's beautiful. See, we do the same with God's commands on money and budgeting and giving and we just we are trying to justify why we're questioning God and His trustworthiness. We don't think He is trustworthy to provide enough for us, so we're not going to follow His commands around those things. See, Satan goes on in this text, and he ratchets up temptation. 
by seeding the thought, seeding the thought in her mind that, in our minds, this happens to us too, that God is withholding something that we rightly deserve, we should be able to have, that God is not as good as we thought. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will actually be like God. He just doesn't want you to be like Him, knowing good and evil. Is God really withholding something good, pleasant, wise for you in His commands? See, if He is, that makes us suspicious of God's motives. We start thinking, is God evil? Is He a power monger? Is He insecure? Is He prideful? Is He petty? Is He uncaring? What is it? What's driving him to withhold something that we should rightfully be able to do that would be okay for us? See, we can think of a lot of sins people do in life, but isn't the essence of you and I judging and accusing God of not being good and loving right up there with the worst of them, the most painful offense of sins? To this day, I can remember... And picture a moment in my mind of me back in sec- about second grade in Dandy of Minnesota where we lived at the time. And, and, and I, where I, what I remember is my dad caught me doing something wrong. I was out of control. He disciplined me. And I turned on him with the most sharp and fluent tongue I can ever remember having in a conversation with him. And I told him he was never there for us. And I said he didn't really know me and he didn't know what was going on and he was so uncaring, he was evil, he was a horrible person, he had no business being a dad to me. Now, we get this, we've all experienced and we've seen that kind of interaction between a kid and a parent who's out of control, that happens and most of the time we get it as adults, we just, we know that's going to happen and we know this is just a moment where we press in and we, we can work through it and we can shape our kids But in that moment, something was different. I crucified the character so fluently and sharply that I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. I pushed all the right buttons and absolutely demoralized him. All he could do was walk away. And I knew I had done something terrible. I had hurt him as deeply as I possibly could. Have you ever felt that kind of rejection? Have you ever been the one doing that kind of rejection so thoroughly demoralizing someone else? I mean, think about what God must feel. In all of our justifications saying we know better than Him, questioning His love, His goodness, suspecting Him of ill intent, especially in light of all that He's done to love us, and even when we aren't lovable. One final thing is happening in this passage that, about temptation that we see, and it's, it's this, that we are telling ourselves as well, don't worry about judgment. God, did God really say you would die? No, you, you, you will surely not die. That isn't really going to happen. God is merciful. For, he'll forgive. It's not a big deal. God is love. One who loves will not judge. And that statement is such an utter lie, and we know it. One who loves will always fight for what is good and right and protect against evil. You cannot have love without judgment. That argument is like saying, I love my kids and I'm going to let them do whatever they want to do with no consequences. That just leads to maladjusted kids and paints the best portrait of a parent who does not love well. Sure, 
Judgment is accompanied by guilt, and we love to avoid guilt. I love how the, uh, the playwright Arthur Miller once said about it. He said he quit believing in God because he couldn't accept the doctrines about guilt and judgment. He was sure that by freeing himself from God, he would find freedom from guilt. And that's exactly what the studies say. Many of the nuns, the people in our culture today who say they have no faith, are thinking and doing. But what Miller noted, he actually found, was not freedom from guilt and judgment. He found he was all the much more driven by the need for it as he now lived and died by the approval of the audience. His soul, like all of our souls, needed to hear the phrase, well done, which is a phrase of judgment, isn't it? And who we really need to hear that phrase from most is God, our Creator. See, Genesis describes what it happens in, in, in essentially every process of temptation we face that leads us to sin. We question God's love, His trustworthiness. We put ourselves in the place of God as a judge of what is right and true and, and what that really is, and, and we disagree with Him, so we are the judge, and we say, no big deal, don't worry about judgment. That leads us to the second major question that this text addresses. What are the consequences of sin? Verse 7, And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then skipping down later, God's describing the consequences of sin to Adam and Eve. And, and, and he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband. But he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Therefore, cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, the thorns and the thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's look at five quick truths that this tells us about the consequences of the reality in which we live. First, it says sin brought fear, hiding, and shame into our identity and into our relationships. I mean, Adam and Eve had been naked the whole time, but now that vulnerability feels shameful and unsafe to them, so they hide. Isn't that our first reaction, especially when we sin in life? Isn't that the way we live life? too often working hard to keep the vulnerable things in our lives, the failures and sins safely tucked away, and we put our best foot forward instead of our honest foot forward in life. We even tend to hide through religion and religious practices. We think, I'll make up for the guilt by doing religious observances. I'll donate some time to serve. I'll donate some money. But as J.D. Greer says, you know, that's like a man who buys flowers for his wife in an attempt to make everything right after having an affair. See, atheism never plays well to the vast majority of people. Most people believe in God, and we all believe there is something wrong in the world, and there is something wrong with us. So we tend to come up with these formulas in our heads to pay God off, to control our life. I think it's interesting, Ed Stetzer, one of the leading researchers on Christianity in America today in the church, says one of the challenges of Christianity, and in particular Christian preachers in America, 
is to not just convince people who don't believe, who are outside of the church, that they need Jesus and need Him to save them. It is also, he says, to convince the religious people in the church that they aren't saved and need to be saved. Because too many people in the church, even if they wouldn't label themselves this way, he says, are religious zealots trying to pay God off for their guilt rather than being true followers of God who have received His forgiveness and walk honestly with God. Second, the text teaches us that sin increased pain. The example God gives is childbearing, but the, the, the connotation is pain is globally increased. And, and the point that God is making here is God is telling us expect pain in life. Don't be surprised by pain in life. Sin brings pain even to some of the happiest parts of our lives. And third, the text says, sin has warped our desires. The woman's desire for her husband is going to be different. The husband's desire for the wife is warped, the text shows us. And so that even the most significant and loving close relationships that we have will face difficulty. Instead of naturally living in a pure expression of love, we will always tend to be warped in our desires and driven by our own self-interest. See, sin causes problems in your relationship with yourself. It causes problems in relationship with others and our relationship with God. Why? Because our desires are warped by sin. Now, here is where this really, really speaks to our current culture today. How often have you heard people justifying living in a way the Bible teaches is not good or best, but the Bible teaches is sin by saying, I've always felt this way. I've always had these desires, so God made me this way. See, right here it says those desires are warped. God didn't make you that way. If your desires go against what our Creator said in the way He created to you, they are not from Him. They are part of the effects of sin that warps all of our desires. You just might have warped desires in a different area than I do. See, even if desires are driven by, by biology, the text tells us forth that sin brought forth death. Sin has corrupted both our desires and our very DNA, our biology, leading to sickness and death, physical death, a damage in relationships, damage in how we view ourselves and feel about ourselves and others. And fifth, it says sin brought frustration, difficulty, and brokenness to all of creation. Things break down. Famines happen. Weeds happen. Work is hard. Natural disasters happen. All of creation was affected when we, who were created in the image of God and given dominion to care for the entire earth, brought broken, the brokenness of sin into the reality of creation. Sin has cosmic influences. Now these are the realities of the consequences of sin. Not something God wanted, not something God did, not something God does. See, most of the time when we say, if God is loving and all-powerful, then He wouldn't let this happen. He would heal us and end this suffering. We are, we are not only misunderstanding love and free choice and the sovereignty of God, we are actually blaming God for the problems caused by humanity's sin. When we get sick and we say, well, God brought this on me, God must have known I could handle this, and 
when work is difficult or unjust because of injustice or just flat out brokenness in the economy, he said, we say, well, God knew, God did this, so God has a plan. And that's actually all blaming the brokenness of creation on God instead of putting the blame where it belongs, on the humanity's sin and its consequences. So the third question the text addressed, which is, I just love this. This is one of my favorite pieces in the Bible. Who is God to us in the face of sin? I've been thinking about this for a long time. I, I, I love this. From the very beginning of creation and the moment sin entered, God is wanting Adam and Eve, wanting us to know something in this text that if we deeply embed it in our lives and the way we think and feel and believe, it changes everything on how we see God throughout the rest of Scripture and today in our own lives. So let's get it this way. Imagine yourself being in the garden with Adam and Eve who had just disobeyed God doing the one thing He instructed them not to do. And the text says, and then the both of their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves and they covered themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It goes on and says this. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, this is just a ridiculous scene. I mean, come on, hiding from God. Have you ever seen your toddler stick their head under the, under the, under the bed and stick their, butt, their butts sticking out? I mean, this is worse than that. This is just, yet we do the same thing in our lives. We go to church, we do spiritual things, and we act like God doesn't see or really care about the sin that's happened over here. Before we read further, let's try to think about this and feel this from God's perspective. Okay? God has just been suspected and accused of not being good and having ulterior motives by the two people He created and the ones He walked and talked with daily in the garden paradise that He created for them. He has been accused by them of being unloving, not good, not wise. So think about this. If you created something and it turned on you in this way, even though you knew you did everything right and good and had given your all perfectly loving them, what would you do? What would be your response? Here's what God does. He says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I've heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And, and God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Let me ask you a question. What tone do you hear in, this, in, in these questions that God is asking? Do you hear, where are you? Or do you hear, where are you? See, the text doesn't explicitly tell you the emotion God has, but I think from his actions surrounding this, we can say it isn't rejecting, powering up anger. And that's important. When you sin, how do you think God feels about you? That's important. You see, in this text, we don't see God fuming with anger and rejection, saying, you guys are just rebellious idiots. You screwed up royally, so now go and reap the consequence of your sins. Since you didn't think you need me, I don't need you. Just be on your own. No, God doesn't do that. God comes to them, pursues them, 
Ask them questions that he already knows the answers to. And he spends time preparing them, we'll see a little bit later, about what they can now expect, and he provides for them. He makes proper clothes for them. See, I think God's primary emotion when we sin is an overwhelming, loving, compassionate sadness and grief for us. For us. And what we and others will now experience because of our sin. If you allow yourself to see God's emotions as compassionate sadness lovingly coming to you to help you and rescue you, it changes so much of the way we read the Bible stories. It changes the way we see God's wrath and anger. It changes the way we see God in relation to ourselves. Let's go a little bit deeper with what's going on here. What is God doing here by asking questions He already knows the answers to? See, what God is doing here is, I think, tremendously powerful, and it sets up the rest of Scripture for us in terms of what God wants from us when we sin. God is asking questions that He already knows the answers to because God's desire is for honest, open, real relationship with us. God is wanting Adam and Eve to own their own sin, to be open and honest. So He asks questions and gives them the opportunity to own their sin rather than coming out and telling them what they did wrong. That's such a powerful parenting tool, by the way. I wish I did it better. Honestly, honesty is the foundation of faith in God and being a follower of God. Not that you're never going to sin. We're all going to repeatedly fail in sin. But the question of faith and relationship with God is, will you be genuinely honest with God about your sins so that together with God, you can move on from it and find healing? See, that's the reason David is called a man after God's own heart. He eventually, and sometimes it takes a bit, is consistently and utterly honest. Even in the wake of his most horrible sins. See, this is how God comes to us, inviting honest relationship. But in this instance, look what happens. In verse 12 it says, The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I think if I had been God here, glad I'm not, I would have stopped and confronted Adam. I would have driven his arguments into the ground until he owned his stuff. Right? Text goes on. Eve actually does the same. She blames as well, doesn't take full honest responsibility. But again, God's love respects free choice. And God's love is patient beyond anything we will ever be. He takes us where we are and He works with us from there. And here's the beauty. Even though they don't respond with honesty to Him about their sin, God still presses into them and goes for them and wants relationship with them. See, earlier we read the consequences. And I think a lot of times when we read the consequences, we read them as penalties. But I think what God is actually doing here is something very different. What God is doing is He is helping them in the list of what we think are consequences. He's actually helping them understand and adjust to the new broken reality that they now face. He's forewarning them. He's preparing them to face their broken reality well. 
So how do we know those are not, not just penalties and they're actually God forewarning? I think it's the same way that we know the primary motivation of God throughout this isn't a judging, rejecting anger. Because of how He approached them in the first place. How trying to invite them to honesty because of what He does after the consequences. In verse 20, the text describes how God didn't just leave them on their own with their hobbled together fig leaves. Like, you want to do it on your own? Then you look foolish and you do it on your own. Right? That's what we would expect Him. But, but rather a saddened, compassionate, lovingly pursuing God is what we see. He made for them garments of skin and clothed them, caringly providing for them. And God in the midst of that forewarns them of the consequences and gives them a promise. It's actually the first prophecy foretelling the coming of Jesus. Right at the very beginning when sin enters, the ultimate path to rescue humanity is already brought into play. He says, I will put enemy, enemy between you, Satan, and the woman, and before between your offspring and her offspring, and he referring to Jesus, shall bruise your, Satan's head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Satan orchestrated the hatred that sent Jesus to the cross, uh, biting Jesus' heel, but Jesus crushed Satan's head, his authority, in the process of that happening. Making a way for all of us to be free of the power of sin, restoring relationship with God, and the hope of complete restoration one day to all the good God created us to be. Worship team, come on back up. See, in Romans 5, 12 through 20, 20, 21, we're not going to read it, but it tells you there about Jesus as the second Adam. It talks about Him being the truer, better Adam. Like, like Adam, Jesus was tempted by Satan. Unlike Adam, who was tempted by in paradise, Jesus was tempted in the barren desert wilderness. Unlike Adam, Jesus resists the temptations, choosing to trust the goodness of God and trusting God's Word. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the tree and died. Jesus willingly obeyed God and willingly was nailed to a tree to take the curse of sin on behalf of all of us so that we could be rescued from it. See, even... In the account of sin entering the world, we see a God who compassionately, lovingly, patiently pursues us, trying to be honest, trying to get us to be honest and ask forgiveness, and trying to help us trust His mercy and love in order that we could be saved from brokenness of what we had just done and the sin that was brought in. See, the role of God and the role of the gospel uh, 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 and the and the gospel is this if you expose your sin Jesus is going to cover it if you cover up your sin Jesus is going to attempt to expose it why because he loves you and he wants you to be free of it so where is God inviting you to respond to him today in whatever small or maybe a big way you need to the invitation is to be honest to accept His love, accept His help, and His leadership in your life. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, I'm just so grateful that You you put this in the Bible. Because God, I even know now, even though I know this stuff, there's so many times when difficult stuff happens that I'm tempted to blame You. I'm tempted to get angry. I'm tempted to put distance between You. And yet... What you want for all of us when we're facing the pain of what we have 
reaped and the consequences of our sin is you want us to be honest and you want to come to us and, and strengthen us to walk us through it, to help us find freedom. And when we face difficulty and, and setback and, and disease, to walk us through that, you want to be with us. So Lord, I pray that you'd come and you help all of us more consistently challenge these ways that we blame you and more consistently receive your love and your presence with us. That we would walk in the power and the authority that you've won for us in the work of Jesus. And Lord, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to this song, Lord, would you use these words to help our hearts respond to you, to help us open up to you in the ways that we can personally be really relevant to you today. And would you come now by your Spirit and touch us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-West dot org. Thanks for listening.